My grandmother, my Israel, she wasn't my Polish grandmother, loved Matlock. She was in love with Matlock. She pronounced it Moodlock. Okay. <laughs> Hi, I'm Maya Garantz. And I'm Rebecca Cohen. And this is The Sauce, the culture and politics podcast where we drink cocktails and ruin the stuff that you love. In this episode, we're going to ruin all your favorite cop shows. I mean, we're going to ruin cops. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, we have been wanting to do an episode on propaganda for ages. There are so years, many years, actually, I mean, <laughs> literally years. Uh, it, it's such a big topic, though, because there's so many movies and TV shows. There's just so much material about police out there. I also think that part of the problem is that it's not really our genre. So we don't have the kind of exhaustive knowledge of it that allows us to kind of dive into it uh, with ease. True. This is true. So what we decided to do is maybe make this a multi-parter. And this will be part one of our examination of propaganda. We're going to start with television. Off the top, we should say we... We probably haven't watched most of the shows we're going to be talking about. So this will be fun. Maybe we'll be it, completely wrong. It will be. Maybe we'll be wrong. If you guys are bigger fans of these shows, we'd love to hear your thoughts. Join us on our Discord channel, The Sauce Speakeasy. If you join our Patreon, you get access to it at any level. So go to patreon.com slash sauce podcast and tell us how we are wrong. Um, and I'm definitely currently trying to track down propaganda experts to come on and talk to us about it. Ooh, that's a good idea. So this is kind of the top, top level meta view <laughs> of it. Uh, and, you know, actually, I feel like this is going to pair very nicely with a nice uh, sort of gasoline note uh, with <laughs> an episode we did years ago about procedurals. Uh, but I think propaganda is its own body. Yes. We have a lot to dive into here. But of course, before we do that, we've got to check in. Maya, I know you recently had a show opening. I need to know how you're doing, how the show opening went, and what are you drinking? I am... Drinking a hot toddy because it's rainy in LA. Um, <laughs> I am so tired. You know, every time you you finish it, complete a big project, there's always an emotional crash. Like there's very mm. postpartum depression. It's just one of those things. Never in my life have I so looked forward to that crash as I have. <laughs> I'm like Clinical depression, bring it on. I am ready to wear no underwire bras for fucking a year and a half. I am so tired. But the show is beautiful. If you're in the LA area, I hope you can come see it. It is a show of the Plague Archives. And there are a couple of videos that I actually really want to share with you, Rebecca, and maybe I'll share them on the Discord, links to them, um, about the histories of the way that disease has been used to instantiate white supremacy. And one video that I made about uh, Louis Pasteur's most famous experiment with sheep, and it goes to all kinds of other really perverse places. So I'm really happy with the show. I'm really happy with how it turned out. I think it looks beautiful. It's going to be up for two months. But good Lord, 
I am ready to stare at a wall. So guys, I'm not going to be at my sharpest today, and I have no apologies for that. Well, we won't ask you to apologize for it. You've earned it. And I want to know about the perverse places. So please do share that video. It'd be so cool if you share it on the Discord so our patrons can check it out. Absolutely. And how about you? What are you drinking? How are you doing? You got a, a yowling little girl, little baby yes. girl. My my cat, you listeners may hear. Maya's hearing it. She's um, making a big racket. She probably wants to be fed. So it's just bad timing that I started recording when her food bowl was empty or possibly just full of food she's tired of. She's a little spoiled. But um, I do have good cat news. Last time we spoke, I think it was last time we spoke, I told you some bad news. Yeah. Baby girl had a nodule in her lung. It's a metastasis from an earlier cancer that was surgically removed, non-operable, not treatable. And uh, we didn't know how quickly it would grow or, you know, how long she would be for this world. And it's very upsetting. Uh, Last week, I took her in for the one-month follow-up so we could see if it's growing or if it's stable. And the doctor said to me, well, her x-rays show there's no nodule. (gasps) Yeah. And I was like, excuse me? And she said... Well, according to the records, because this was a different doctor than we saw last time, uh, according to the records, the nodule only showed up on one of three x-rays. They do three pictures from three different angles. And so the radiologist report says possible or probable. I don't remember her exact language, but it's something not certain, like possible nodule. And I was like, that's not what they said to me. (laughs) They told me she had lung cancer. And... um, Yeah, she was like, well, I can't speak to that. I wasn't there, but she's fine. And I just got the official radiology report today. There's nothing there. She's fucking fine, Maya. That is such good news. That's wonderful. That is so wonderful. Yeah, it's really, it's so, I can't even get my head around it because I've been spending a month, like, trying not to fantasize about things like this, like, trying to be rational about it and accept what's going to happen, you know, be positive in my thinking and, like, as optimistic as is reasonable. But this was, like, the ridiculous thing that in your deep heart of hearts you, like, secretly hope will happen even though you know it won't. Like, oh, the doctors were wrong. <laughs> she doesn't actually have lung cancer. So, But it's good. I'm very happy. And I'm celebrating by drinking a calimocho, which is red wine and Diet Coke. Someday I will give that. You can scoff, but it has a Spanish name. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'm so delighted to hear about that. I am so horrified that they made you go through that. I know. Um, It was right before the holidays, too. It was like, God. You're like, our last Christmas with baby girl. Basically, yeah. Fuck that. Well, I am delighted to hear about it. Uh, And I think there's a lot of cops and a lot of episodes that we have to get to. Yes. So we should just, you just want to jump in and go to go for it? I think we better do it. So our listeners will not be surprised that what inspired this week's episode was yet another incident of horrifying violence. Tyree Nichols was brutally murdered by the Memphis police six 
of whom are suspended from the police force. Um, they released footage, which I did not watch, and I encourage no one to watch. But again, we are seeing ways in which violence against Black people from the police state is pushing up against a very large fantasy of what the police are again. And so we just thought it was important to talk about that fantasy. Yeah. And many activists who have been watching this continuation of a long-standing pattern of police violence, particularly targeting African-Americans and African-American communities, are talking about things like defunding police, even abolishing police. And I'm not even talking about the people who are like back of the blue, which, by the way, we were in Texas a couple weeks ago. See a lot of those signs there. Um, I'm not even talking about that, the, the sort of Blue Lives Matter people. It's just your typical average American. When going into a conversation, going into a public discourse about these issues, I think they are coming at it with a whole bag of biases, a whole set of biases. Oh, yeah. That are it's just a completely fantastical, completely incorrect impression of what police do. And a lot of that is attributable to what we see in entertainment media. And it's worth which, diving into. Yes, which was there to train viewers <laughs> into <laughs> believing uh, certain things about what the police are. Yeah. And what we think they should be. Yeah, which is why I'd like to start by talking a little bit about the history of this genre on television. We're yes. going to focus on television here. Um, one thing to note, I, I just think it's really crazy when you look at it, how many cop shows there are and have been on television since the beginning of television. Although I think there's more now than ever. I mean, Rebecca made this spreadsheet and it's like pages and pages and, and pages. And that's not even comprehensive. It, and the font is small. And it's just <laughs> like from 1949. I mean, just pages and pages and pages. Yeah, those are selected. Those are like the ones I've heard of. Uh, oh, my God. But cop shows in the United States, very popular genre. And it's, it's easy to see why. Um, the legal drama or crime drama, it really works well on television. It lends itself very well to episodic television format, where you can have characters who, you know, continue from episode to episode and may have their own plot lines, but each episode brings in a new story. You have a new crime to solve. And, you know, some, some of them depart from that format, but that's the dominant format for crime and police shows. And because it's in this world, it has the the anchor of just being like a job with the same people working this kind of job. Mm -hmm. um, but the job that they're working has high stakes. So yes. it keeps the motor of a narrative episodic function going. Exactly. Exactly. You get good high stakes every week. And um, you see, based on that, some of these shows have run, are still running for after decades of being on the air. A lot of them have really long runs. And 
some of the older shows, and by older, I mean, you know, from the last 20 years, but they're no longer on television. They're doing really well on streaming. Now they're on Netflix or Hulu or whatever, and people are picking up on them because you can go back and watch episodes of Law & Order or whatever from 10 years ago, and they still hold up. You don't have to binge the entire thing. You can watch just a few episodes. You can have a million different entry points because pretty much any episode stands alone. Um, it, it really speaks to the flexibility of this format of storytelling. And it comes from, obviously it comes from a much older tradition of detective and mystery storytelling, like novels, dime store novels, pulp novels. But the episodic nature of it comes from the radio. Mm. And so there were radio precursors like since the 1930s. So there were a couple that I thought were notable. First, I wanted to share one, uh, Casey, crime photographer, which was a media <laughs> oh, franchise. I, I love your 1930s radio voice. That was excellent. <laughs> uh, it was a media franchise from the 1930s. It was in pulp magazines, but also on the radio. And Jack Flashgun Casey was a crime photographer for the Morning Express. With the help of reporter Ann Williams, he solved crimes and recounted his stories to Ethelbert the bartender (laughs) at a jazz club. Uh, (laughs) So I just think that's hilarious. Ethelbert the bartender, like, come the fuck on. That's so good. But yeah, he's just a crime photographer but he solves the crimes with a reporter. So they're not police, but they do this sort of work of the police, which is meant to be solving crimes. Yes. So like solving mysteries. So I want to put a pin in that for later. But the thing I was the most interested in is one of the oldest old radio police dramas is called Calling All Cars. And it dramatized cases that had been handled by the LAPD. And it was hosted by Chief James Davis, the chief of the LAPD. <laughs> so That's amazing. So it was like almost a docudrama. It was almost a reality show. Well, but it was, but it was dramatized. also straight propaganda. Yes. Like, <laughs> yeah, like, clearly. <laughs> it is like straight propaganda, propaganda, where the chair, the chief of the LAPD was dramatizing cases that had handled, been handled by the LAPD. And it always starts with the facts of a crime, introducing individuals associated with that case. It is dramatized and climaxes in the arrest of the criminal, and it ends with the outcome of the trial. So that it, it has this very specific arc. So that leads us straight into what I want to talk about, which is that relationship between Hollywood writ large, but also very much television, the television arm of Hollywood, and the LAPD and the police. Um, You can see it having its genesis in these pre-television radio programs. It really gets interesting with the show Dragnet, which is generally viewed as being the sort of like template for cop shows. Um, it wasn't the first cop show on TV. The The first that I am aware of was called The Plain Clothesman. Yes. Which also was a radio show that then became a TV show. And uh, what's interesting about The Plain Clothesman 
is that it was all POV, 100% from the point of view. You never saw the face of the detective. You saw everything from his point of view. Like people would hand him a cigarette and it's like they're handing it to... Isn't it great? The whole show was that, which I think is really cool. But let's talk about this cooperation between Hollywood and the police. I got a lot of this information from this great piece in uh, the Washington Post by Alyssa Rosenberg, which is about police censorship shaping Hollywood. And uh, she wrote about how, look, there's always been this close relationship, or at least from early on. I mean, like in the 19-teens, you have like the Keystone Cops and you have the cops. What is it called? They don't have a non-defamation leak, but you know what I mean. The the PR arm of the police being, you know, objecting to Hollywood because they tend to portray cops as being buffoons, that kind of thing. But As time went on, it became clear that Hollywood really needed to have a good relationship with the police for various reasons. One being Hollywood stars would get up to some very illegal shenanigans. Like very famously, Fatty Arbuckle was accused of rape and murder, probably correctly. Uh, the, The stars, they would get up to many things that the studios needed to keep covered up. So they had to have a close relationship with the police. Also, there was just logistical shit. Like, movie studios needed permits. They needed to shoot on city streets. They needed the police to enforce the permits and, you know, keep people off of the streets that they were trying to shoot on. Like, they they basically used police as their security on set. So they needed to be in the good graces of the police. And so Dragnet was started by uh, actor Jack Webb. And he got the idea for it when he was working with an LAPD detective, when he was playing a forensics investigator in some uh, some movie. Right, um, right. And he had this idea to make Dragnet authentic, that he could present <sighs> it as this super authentic, realistic look into the real work that police do. So he forged a partnership with the LAPD, with... LAPD chief William Parker and their publicity guy and all this stuff. And they basically had this agreement that the LAPD would have script approval over every episode of Dragnet in exchange for their story ideas and logistical help and just the ability to say this was all approved by the LAPD so you know it's real. And that was the big selling point of Dragnet. It was like the stories you were about to see are real, but the names have been changed so forth. And I want to just add in terms of framing it, uh, first of all, the idea that um, cops were portrayed as buffoons. There's a beautiful article on Vox about the history of copaganda. And it's true. Um, in yes. the 19 teens, the Keystone Cops police dog, which was this short, this animated short, like, yes, cops were made to look ridiculous because cops in general were known to be crooks corrupt crooks like they were known to be like they they were were. they were (laughs) they were corrupt gang um so really that's really worth pointing out right and there had been very public scandals around that absolutely the public image of the police was not a super positive one it wasn't and it it led to really intense police reform but the media hadn't caught up to that which made a lot of the police you know, and people who are sort of running police departments want this shift in media portrayal. But also, William Parker, who mm-hmm. apparently 
did clean up the corruption of the LAPD, also recruited police from Klan rallies. So oh, William Parker... I thought that was ma- where they mainly recruit police from. <laughs> right. Um, <laughs> Par so, for the course. <laughs> um, so just braided into the very emergence of Dragnet, which was developed in relation with the head of LAPD, mm-hmm. it is braided in with the most explicit racism. It's not even implicit so or from the old okay. times. That's, it is like explicitly racist. That's really racist. interesting because the show, so Dragnet started on radio in 1949 and then moved to television in 51. And it portrayed like in the background, black and Hispanic cops. Which right. actually was not accurate because right. the the police right. force was actually heavily segregated in LA right. at the time. But when I say that this guy, William Parker, the Klan recruiter guy, um, had like script uh, veto power, it wasn't just like, oh, he put his rubber stamp on it. If they didn't like anything in a script, that episode was scrapped. That's they, right absolutely did have control over what went into that program. And of course, Dragnet was a huge hit. I don't know how much viewers are familiar with Dragnet, but it followed Sergeant Joe Friday and his partner in a sort of procedural type of format where they would solve a crime each episode. And it highlighted, like Joe Friday as a character was like so straight-laced he hated drugs and crime. He was very scientific in his methods. Just the facts, ma'am, was his right. catchphrase, right? Right. So right there, you are creating a model, a template of how to portray police as like clean cut, uh, focused on the crime. Unemotional. Unemotional, yeah, absolutely. And that was part of the whole censorship was like when you saw shootings, they were clinical shootings were never done out of fear or emotion or revenge it was always like necessary force of course which is like a theme we're going to see throughout this but um the overriding thing is the idea that the police are this well-organized and structured force for good that they are keeping order in society there is disorder out there but the police are going to restore and maintain order that's their job And this was very influential. Uh, In fact, uh, Highway Patrol, which debuted in 1955, that happened because the California Highway Patrol's commissioner demanded that he get his own PR show. He saw Dragnet and was like, we need one of those. Wow. No kidding. And then uh, ABC had the show FBI, which J. Edgar Hoover signed off on FBI. Oh, my God. Yeah. And apparently, you know, many networks approached him before he decided to go with ABC and their pitch or whatever. But Hoover maintained full script approval and even vetted the actors based on their politics before they could be cast in the show. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. And that show was like a gritty, oh, we're going to look at real FBI cases. Like, it's like a proto-law and order. Like, we're going to look at stuff from real life, but slightly fictionalized. So what I'm getting out of all of this, which I think is the most key and important part of all of this, Mm -hmm. is that it didn't just emerge as a popular 
episodic genre that happened to instantiate all of these ideas about police. It was created by police. It was created (laughs) by them. Yes. They were right there creating it. So when you call it copaganda, it's not like, oh, they're making this, but then it just happens to be, it's like, no, 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 no. 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 The entire genre found its feet uh, by the cops who were saying what it was supposed to be. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And in the most direct way. Yeah. They were signing off on the scripts. And one of the things interesting about Dragnet is that you see in the history, there were times when they tried to approach things about police corruption. They tried to approach Mm -hmm. some of those things about police violence. And somehow those episodes never got made. Correct. So here's an interesting thing, though. Um, This is, again, I'm getting this from Alyssa Rosenberg's great piece in Washington Post. She pointed out that uh, in the early 70s, there was this book called The New Centurions, written by Detective Sergeant Joseph Wambaugh of the LAPD. And it was a novel. It was a fictionalized account, or a fictional account, but it followed three LAPD officers from the police academy through the 1965 Watts riots. Mm. And the way Alyssa Rosenberg describes it, she says, it's a raw, intimate look at the psychological costs of policing. So the relevance of this novel is, you know, Let's place this, right? It's coming in the early 70s, right after the Watts riots and the 1968 Democratic Convention. And and it's coming after the 60s, right? (laughs) So the public's perception of cops is changing based on what's happening on the news and in their neighborhoods. Yes. And things are getting more complicated. Yes. And the sort of dragnet era is coming to an end for sure. Yes. So this novel got adapted and it got adapted without the approval of any higher ups in the LAPD. And this at least corresponded with, if not being a major factor in, which probably was a factor in this shift in cop shows. Basically, from being top down, the heads of law enforcement agencies are determining what you are going to show on your show that's not happening anymore, but instead showrunners and networks start hiring individual cops, individual police and retired police to be consultants on the show. Right. So they can continue to make this claim of authenticity, which has always been important going back to Dragnet, right? Is that claim of like, we're showing you the real inside story. But now instead of coming from the top down, it's coming from these individual officers whatever. It also shows a giant shift just to sort of complete the thought of this kind of straight-laced fantasy, the kind of white picket fence masculinity Mm -hmm. that I think was such a huge part of the 50s and into the 60s. Like we like to think that, oh, the 60s was when, you know, subculture happened, but that was in the late 60s and and main culture was always behind. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. So yeah. a lot of those 50s cultural ideas were really dominant throughout the 60s. Um, but it shifts from that kind of white picket fence, strong jawed masculinity to this other ultimately very pro cop idea of like, hey, man, the cop is a person too. Right, right, exactly. And I think that that has become 
very dominant. And actually, if you look at the 70s, so many of the cop shows are not like Dragnet, FBI. Instead, they are like the names of the cops. Macmillan and Wife. (laughs) <laughs> like Columbo, uh, Starsky and Hutch. Like it's these, it's these, these personalities, people, these personalities mm-hmm. so that you yes. can, you can go and see the real, it's really complicated to be a cop. Exactly. That, that is exactly what was sort of ushered in in the seventies. So you, you have a shift from, um, having to portray cops as perfect. Yes to letting them be complex and interesting and flawed and to show the toll that their work takes on them. But underneath all of that, underneath all of that is the idea that their work is noble and their work is necessary. Of course. Of course. Uh, It's interesting that you point out really briefly that, um, the masculine, the white picket fence masculinity, as you call it, of the 50s and and as um, embodied in uh, Dragnet continued into the 60s because Dragnet was revived in the 60s. Like it ended in 59 and then had a revival in the 60s. Right around the time that that was happening was also when the show Mod Squad started. That was 68. It might be like right after the revival of Dragnet ended. And Mod Squad was like an answer. It was directly, in fact, intended as an answer to Dragnet. Uh, it was one of those shows that had a police consultant on it or a police person involved. And, you know, Mod Squad was about these, like, cool mod teen cops. are cops. cool. Right. They're cool. But it was very directly like uh, Dragnet thinks the youth are out of control and terrible. But it's 1968. We're not going to get ratings for that. We're going to show that the youth are cool, but also like on the side of the law. Right. (laughs) They're also also catching criminals. That's right. And then you have, you know, follow that forward to the early 90s. You get shows like NYPD Blue, where uh, it's really so much about how flawed and complicated these cops are, even as they're just doing essentially the same work as you ever saw in any of these procedurals. And then... Even The Wire, I thought this was very interesting because The Wire is largely based on a book that David Simon co-wrote with a cop uh, called The Corner, I think. Yes. And it's about, you know, drug dealers in Baltimore and the all The Corner, a year, a year in the life of the killing streets. Yes. And that was sort of the predecessor to The Wire. And a lot of the stuff that happens on The Wire is really like taken from the life story of this police detective that was the longtime friend and collaborator of David Simons. So you're still getting the police's point of view. It's just not the official institutional point of view per se, but more the uh, individual, isn't it hard for us cops point of view? Well, and that's the thing about The Wire as copaganda, I mean, you're not going to find bigger Wire fans. For real. You're not going to find a bigger Wire fan than than of me and Rebecca. I mean, <laughs> yeah. like, let's just be let's no. be very direct about that. But at the same time, our lead character McNulty, he's a fuck up, but it's because he just wants to do his job right. God damn it! Exactly. And so you're still seeing. This this main thing where cops are not bad, the systems are bad, 
And you have these moments where even the most straight-laced, you know, Lieutenant Daniels engages in some uh, some unnecessary police brutality or whatever. <laughs> like, they they all have their moments, but at the end of the day, there is a nobility to the work that mm-hmm. is mm-hmm. always there. And the problem are the systems that are interrupting the potential for that nobility. That's the problem. The work that the cops are doing is noble. They just want to do this good work. They just want to solve crimes. In there, we see so many of these sort of tropes and devices that are really common in cop shows, including the cop who has a troubled home life, right? The work takes this toll that always, you know, interferes with their marriage and their family life. You see that on The Wire. Very common. Um, I want to talk about some of the other tropes that we see, some of the motifs, devices that keep popping up on these shows. So that's one of them is like right. that the cop with the troubled family life and, and generally this sort of the cop who has noble ideals about their work, but they have these other personality issues well, because it's so hard to be a cop. You're just dealing with all of these criminals all the time. It's just corrupting to your very soul, even though it is totally necessary. Of course. <laughs> I mean, I think a big thing that I think is really important is that, back to McNulty, is that you come to think that the main job of the cop is to solve crimes. Yes, yeah. Like, like that's, that's the, the McNulty thing. Yes. It corrupted personal life. The work takes a toll for sure. And also that your main gig is solving crimes is like finding out who done a bad thing. Like that's that the is, job. That is it. That is the overarching thing that is in every cop show. And part of that just goes back to the fact that this, arises out of the age-old mystery detective format. You don't even need to ascribe any copaganda motives or look at the involvement of police forces, which we, as we noted, (laughs) was certainly a major factor. But even aside from that, people love mystery stories. And a mystery story is there's a crime, there's a detective, the detective collects the clues and solves the crimes. And that just fits, it slots in for cop shows like why not that's what the detective's job is it's literally their title is detective right it makes for good tv yes and and it's pretty much all you see on cop shows rarely it's it's difficult to cite i mean other than maybe some reality shows i don't know we can get into some of the subgenres we see but generally speaking it's fair to say that that is the very nature of a cop show. It is about solving a crime, finding who done it, and holding them accountable. The bad guy, the perpetrator, always gets held accountable at the end. Always. Yes. Yes. Um, w- w- which we should just point out that in reality, that is not what cops no. do. <laughs> no. No. Just it to be not. clear. Just be, that's and and so the. The idea is they are the 
upholders or protectors of good mm -hmm. against whatever are the dark and corrupt forces in society. Yes. Like, that's what it is. And going back to what you were saying about The Wire, another thing you noted is, like, Daniel's, like, roughing up a suspect or something. Uh, when you do see illegal or questionable tactics being used on these shows, and some of the latter-day shows, mostly from the last 20, 30 years, do portray that, but it is almost always in service of the larger goal of solving the crime and getting the criminal to justice. You, look, sometimes you just have to cut corners. Exactly. Sometimes when you, when you follow those rules, when you're, when you're all caught up in the red tape from those suits that don't know what they're talking about, they're not out there on the street, you're never going to be able to get the job done that way. So, you know, sometimes you have to do things your own way. Uh, so you do see some police violence, even illegal police violence or tactics that are definitely not legal, but it's almost always for the greater good of catching the criminals. All in the structure of the procedural in which a bureaucracy and all of its attendant parts operate together towards a solution that is always found uh, yes. to, and always sort of helps in this ongoing super patriarchal and white supremacist notion of restoring <laughs> order. It's because, always about restoring because order, Because the right? order that is being restored, it's not like they're restoring a matriarchal order. <laughs> it's not like <laughs> they're restoring a, a multiracial anti-imperialist order or anti-capitalist right. order. Okay, so this is what we're seeing in these shows. I think we need to move on to why people like it and why that's so fucked up. <laughs> I, I do want to get to that. I want to just note a couple of other trends that I see in these because I think they're interesting. Right. One big one is the locations and settings, the urban spaces. Yes. You have a number of shows that are filmed on location. Uh like Streets of San Francisco, filmed on location in San Francisco. Right, a right. lot of them are filmed in L.A. Sometimes they identify it as being L.A., sometimes not. Uh, plenty in New York. New York's a popular setting. Um, even San Diego. But also we got Chicago. Oh, you yes. Know, come Chicago on. PD. Uh -huh. Yeah. All of these urban spaces. And I think it's really important in that it portrays crime, first of all, but also the work of policing as being strictly associated with urban spaces. Crime is an urban problem. Policing is an urban necessity. Yes, with all of the racist subtexts mm -hmm. that are included in that. Right. Uh, the racist subtext, though, is it does remain subtext. Right. Rarely, if ever, do these shows talk about race. They may have cops that are black or other races. They may, they may have uh, diverse casting, but very rarely do you see them actually address questions of race. Although I understand on an episode of Blue Bloods, which I have never watched, although they a couple of years ago were shooting it right outside my window over here <laughs> um, <laughs> because urban spaces. But apparently on an episode, a black suspect throws himself out of a window 
in order to falsely accuse the white cop oh of my God. racist violence. Yeah, yeah. Oh my God. Okay, you know, I, <laughs> all right. This is like, we have to do an episode on tar and how like they, they in order mm. to tell a story about like, yeah. sexual harassment and power they have to like make the lead a right. woman whatever like oliana okay. i yeah. get it it's yeah. Like, yeah oh god um so so the point is that though racial differences may be present uh very rarely is that talked about or any of the systemic issues talked about and actually police shows end up being this like weirdly racially utopian space mm-hmm. in that like there are cops of all races going after criminals of all races. Like right, there right. like there's this way that they can say see it's not about race. This police thing is not about race. We have black cops and asian cops and latino cops. And and so it's this amazing deletion of right. the systemic racial issues. It's a colorblind they create the colorblind the, society. Yeah, the that colorblind does not fantasy. Exist. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, lastly, one last thing I want to bring up is that almost all of these shows are from the point of view of the police. The main oh, yeah. characters are police or prosecutors or whatever, FBI. I hunted for any shows I could find that were not from the point of view of the police, but were from the point of view of the accused. I, there's like five of them maybe <laughs> that I could come up with. I thought it was very interesting that... Both Perry Mason and Matlock are criminal defense attorneys. Yes. I hadn't realized that because I've never watched those shows. I knew they were lawyers and they were lawyer shows. But uh, both Perry Mason and Matlock, every episode centers around someone being falsely accused of a murder. So that's interesting to me that it comes from the point of view of the falsely accused. The police have done bad work on these shows. Yes. And it is Perry Mason or Matlock's job to do the investigation correctly and uncover the real killer, that's which right. then exonerates their client. That And that's the thing is that there's actually an enormous subgenre of the sort of private eye gumshoe, mm-hmm. but he's doing the police work better than the police. The work itself yes. is never at issue. It's that the police don't do it right because they have all these rules. And even even with the police that we say that they're like, they're sort of extrajudicial methods or whatever, like that is even more so, even more so in the PI, you know, detective genre. I do think it's interesting that a substantial number of the characters in the PI detective genre, the private detectives are former cops that's right either retired or for some reason they have been forced out like there's a lot of former cops there other than that like you know there's the fugitive in the 60s which i think it's very interesting that that was in the 60s that ran from 63 to 67 but that's early in the 60s yes yes. that is right pre-counterculture it is it is and that is uh, following someone falsely accused of murder as he tries to prove himself innocent uh, and evade authorities then other than that, there's like a few prison shows like uh, Prison Break, Oz mm-hmm. back in the late 90s, uh, Orange is the New Black that portray things from the point of view of convicted criminals. Like in the case of Prison Break, falsely convicted. In the case of Oz and Orange is the New Black, mostly they are criminals, but at least you are sort of seeing their point of view. Um, I give Orange is the New Black some credit 
because they portray at least prison guards and the prison establishment as very uh, mixed <laughs> at right. best. Um, right. Anyway, uh, the the vast, vast majority of the shows are from the cop's point of view, and it doesn't matter how flawed you make the cop characters. It doesn't matter how nuanced the show is or how much you delve into the uh, corruption in the system or the problems in the bureaucracy, all of that stuff. As long as it's from the cop's point of view, that is who we are identifying with. That's right. And that's that's who our hero is. There's this uh, incredible uh, writer and lawyer and academic um, who is the director of the Civil Rights Corps. And he actually has an incredible newsletter called Copaganda. Uh, his name is Alex Karakatsanis. And he talks about how it normalizes and naturalizes the very institution itself. So we yes. have yet to see something which doesn't normalize and naturalize the very institution. And even something as strange, there's a beautiful article about the way that Watchmen is copaganda. Even mm -hmm. Watchmen, which is so daring and strange and bizarre and deals with race in such a fascinating way, ultimately naturalizes and normalizes the ideal of what the police system should be, as opposed to creating a world in which such things would not be necessary. I think that's a great jumping off point for us to talk about what you mentioned earlier, which is sort of uh, the bigger picture questions at play here. What is the effect of these shows? Yes. And why are they so popular? What, what need is being filled by them? So, I mean, one of the things that Alec Karakatsanis says, which I thought was extremely interesting, was this is something that he says in an interview that's in Current Affairs magazine. He says, as with climate change, there is an overwhelming scientific consensus about the root causes of crime or interpersonal harm in our society. The root causes have all to do with the ways in which our society destroys the bonds between human beings, things like access to housing, early childhood education, inequality, poverty, and mental illness. These are the causes of crime by and large. So every time we talk about crime, the idea of what that what matters is a decision by some bureaucrat or prosecutor, or I would say cop, goes against the great weight of scientific knowledge. Yes. What it does is instantiate the necessity of this institution when all of the scientific research demonstrates that this institution is part of the forces causing the crimes that then justify the institution. Yeah, yeah, ex exactly. Um, there's a lot to unpack here. Um, part of it is what you were saying about normalizing. Right the criminal justice system. I tend to think about the calls for defunding police or even abolishing police and the pushback that they get. And again, like I said at the top of the show, that's not just from like super conservatives and people who are like back of the blue. It's a difficult sell. It's a hard sell to an average American because it's really difficult to conceive of a world without police because Police have been so 
normalized. And the criminal justice system as it exists has been presented to people as a natural and normal and functional thing. But also what you were just reading, I think is key because it gets to this way that these shows individualize the idea of crime and policing, crime and punishment, as it were. The criminals are individuals who have committed criminal acts and the cops are individuals. To the extent that there's a system, it's like, well, there's the police who investigate crimes and there's the DA who prosecutes them. That's it. But they're still individual characters yes. and they're doing their personal individual acts in this specific case. And the idea of systemic issues, societal sources, causes of crime can't be addressed. They, it creates an impression that that's what crime is. It's an individual action with individual repercussions and not part of a larger entrenched system or result of systems. And we see the surges in cop dramas in response to things like the countercultures and civil unrest around race in the 60s, the drug wars of the 80s, mm -hmm. terrorism of the aughts. Like, that's where you see these shows kind of bloom. And right now they're just like going because they have such a formula. And I, I read something that briefly described Copaganda's pornography in the sense that there's this kind of really specific structure, emotional payoff, like there's this thing that works every time, which is why people like it. I mean, we've talked a lot about mm. genre fiction and the satisfactions of genre fiction. You know what it is, you're taken to the stakes, but there's a solution. I think that's really comforting for people. Mm -hmm. But in serving that need, that emotional need that crime can be solved by these individuals, um, something that you wrote here, people are led to believe that crime is going up when all the studies show that it's actually going down. Yes. If I can interrupt yeah. you, this comes from uh, a color of change study mm. that looked at a set of I think 26 different scripted cop shows, um, specifically from the 2017-18 season. And they analyzed them and broke down what they saw. And this was their conclusions of what are the outcomes of people watching these shows. One is that people are led to believe crime is going up when in reality it's going down. Yep. Uh, that the things police and prosecutors do are always helpful. <laughs> when we know they can often be deeply harmful, um, that people of color are inherently dangerous and that police and prosecutors should have more authority right when communities are trying to say their authority is too great and abusive and corrupt. So, so it's, it's not just that these shows make cops look good and competent and capable. It, it's also that they actively work against attempts to combat police abuse yes and the problems that policing causes they convince viewers that crime is this really widespread problem that crime is going up and that police are an effective institution for restoring order and i think that also gets to why the shows are popular because who doesn't want to see the social order restored right and i think that's why 
it is such a politically difficult issue uh, because the biggest way to defeat a political candidate is to say that they are soft on crime. I mean, that was a huge um, attempt by the Republicans this past election cycle. You know, I saw a lot of people breaking this down, looking at, you know, the number of mentions of crime on Fox News and so forth, and people's perception of how much crime is increasing, how much crime there is. And then, like, after the election, of course, their mentions of crimes plummeted. Right. <laughs> they were deliberately using it as a wedge. Right. And it's really interesting because I'm currently living in this really weird a place politically <laughs> where mm -hmm. on the one hand I have like friends who are working and like doing harm reduction and getting like you know clean needles to intravenous drug users and like all of this kind of political work and then on the other hand there are all of these rich people that are through my husband's professional life because mm -hmm. he's a lawyer he's a criminal defense lawyer but yeah he's a lawyer like Matlock. Like Matlock. <laughs> but the thing that was interesting is that when the Tyree Nichols video was about to come out, the neighborhood association in my neighborhood received an email from the police, like warning them about the demonstrations that were going to happen. Mm. And I feel like this is why it was important for us to do this episode right now, because one of the subtexts in a lot of these cop shows is that political demonstrators, leftists, radicals are dangerous and more dangerous. And that's one of the huge backlash bullet points of the backlash against March for Black Lives, which is that protests, that civil disobedience that peaceful mm -hmm. protest is actually dangerous. And there are laws being passed in all kinds of states trying to criminalize civil disobedience and protest. And I feel like we are in a moment where the profound danger of propaganda on our free speech rights and attempts to change the societies in which we live in are very clear. Hey guys, we know you have thoughts and we would like to hear them. I want to know what are your favorite cop shows? Yes. And what are the worst propaganda shows in your opinion and but why? But also tell us which ones you like and we're not going to judge you because problematic faves is kind of our thing, including it's our totally own our problematic thing. including our own problematic faves. So like you can tell us, we will not judge you. But we will tell you why it's problematic. Yes. You can reach us via email. We are saucepodcast at gmail.com. You can find us on all the various social medias as at saucepodcast. You can also yes. come to our Discord channel. That's right. You can um, access that by becoming our patron on Patreon. That's patreon.com slash saucepodcast. If you join at any level, you can join us on the Sauce Speakeasy, that Discord channel. You can talk about this. We can talk about whether margaritas are supposed to taste like tequila or not. Yeah, very important question. Actually, I feel like next week, 
I would like to do a little bit of a mailbag episode because there were conversations about uh, both White Lotus and Hallmark movies that mm. I think we really have to share. So it's like there a like follow-up on previous a episodes. Big, a big follow-up based on our, our right. feedback. Which And we'd love to include your thoughts on propaganda. Yes. Propaganda. So if so, you have thoughts on our previous episodes that you haven't shared, get them in as come quick on. as you can. Come on. You can find me at Maya Garantz. Anywhere you are looking at for Maya Garantz's, you can also find me at the Plague Archives on Instagram, where I am back to daily updating of really gross smallpox faces and <laughs> and all kinds of beautiful like films of like for instance, I'm sorry, I just have to share this. So City of Hope, which is one of the biggest institutions for medical research, like cancer research, started as a Jewish TB sanatorium. Oh my God. In the 19 teens and 20s. And I found a promotional film that they made where, like, the sick tubercular shows up at, like, the train station in Duarte and they, like, take him to the hospital and he looks out the window and just the sight of the California landscape instills within him a new fighting spirit. Wow. It's so good. I love the shit that you find. <laughs> but also, you need to tell listeners where they can see your show. They can see my show at the Pitzer College Art Galleries in L.A., but out in the counties, out in the five colleges. Uh, all the stuff is on my website, mayagarantz.com, or at mayagarantz. Again, wherever the fuck you are looking for mayagarantzes. You can find me as at gynostar on all the various platforms. And we look forward to seeing you again and again, we love our listeners, <laughs> and we will talk to you guys soon. Adios, amigas.